mouthpiece for him in a very difficult time. And he begins like this in verse 4. Now the word of the Lord came to me saying, Behold, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Notice Jeremiah's response. Ah, Lord, behold, I do not know how to speak, for I am only a youth. But the Lord said to me, Do not say, I am only a youth. For to all to whom I send you, you shall go. And whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them. For I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord put his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words into your mouth. See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. And so we want to just keep that in mind as we move forward here. The challenge of Islam, I'm going to do a quick review for maybe a few of you that weren't here yesterday. We can go ahead and turn all the lights off. It would be great. Thank you. Uh, So we're talking about the challenge of Islam. We took a tour to Senegal, West Africa, one nation among many where Islam dominates the people, their culture. Uh, We saw there's a distinct difference between Islam and Muslims. Islam is the system, and Muslims are the people that are trapped in that system. So just keep that in mind. If you forget everything else we considered yesterday, don't forget that. It's easy to get our anger up, our feelings up, and remember that Muslims are precious souls that are trapped in a, a system that denies all that is precious to those of us who know the Lord as Savior. Islam is a threefold system. It's a religious system. Muslims going through the motions of praying and fasting and all these things. It's a cultural system that dominates every aspect of their lives. You might say Islam is the deification of 7th century Arabic culture. Uh, It's a political system, as we know so well. We see things like jihad and uh, taking hold around the world and uh, pushing itself forward. Worst of all, it's an anti-gospel. We talked about John 3.16 How does a Muslim understand John 3.16? Just a quick review for God. Well, for them, God is far off. He's not love. Uh, He so loved the world. God only cares about Muslims. He doesn't care about the rest of the world. Uh, That he gave his one and only son. Islam says God has no son. It's below the majesty of Allah that he should beget a son. And that Jesus wasn't crucified. That whosoever believes in him, Muslims tell us, we believe in Jesus and all the prophets. Why don't you believe the last of the prophets, Muhammad? Shall not perish. Of course, there they're saying, Christians, you are so arrogant. No one can know whether they'll end up in hell or paradise. Only God knows. And finally, have everlasting life. Their whole concept of paradise, it's not about God and dwelling with him and the lamb in his glory and praising him forever. It's about a garden of sensual delights. So a very different understanding as they sit in the darkness of Islam. But then we we ended with this. Islam is what it is. It's not our purpose to try to change Islam. But we do care about Muslims. They are our neighbors and our friends who need the Lord. And so we continue on with the verse I just read. Don't say I'm only a youth. For to to all to whom I send you, you shall go. And so we have a twofold task according to these verses we just read. Uh, Two analogies that are here in this portion. We're, like a farmer, we're to prepare and plant. You ever see a farmer who just goes out and says, ah, I'm not going to plow the field this year. Just let's get the seed out there. No way. You've got to prepare. 
Uh, and sometimes the field may have huge boulders in it, and those have to be removed, and it takes time. I told you yesterday that we were seven years in Senegal before we saw the first Muslim uh, come to Christ, but now we see a harvest coming, and God is preparing, and he is blessing the, the good seed. A builder, the other analogy here. Builders can't go to a site where there's an old structure and say, uh, don't, don't pull it down, let's just try and build sort of around it or onto it. No, you take down the old before you begin to build the new. And so that is part of our task as ambassadors for Christ, is that we're called to be ministers to not only build but to break down. And, and uh, there's a lot we could say about that, but one way, of course, the, the lies get broken down is simply by clear, uh, patient presentation of the truth. The truth sets people free. All right, how do Muslims perceive Christians? This is important. How do, how do they see Christians? I, and this is a huge subject, but let me just throw up a few thoughts. Christians don't really pray. You know, Muslims pray five times a day. They drink, they eat pork. Uh, yeah, you have one wife, but you sleep around, you know. You, you've got a real loose morality. You see, they're basing a lot on, on what they believe about Christians from Hollywood, from the impressions they get about America. They see Christianity synonymous with being an American often, uh, or some other Christian religion that really isn't adhering to the word of God. You worship three gods, you know, that's their concept of the Trinity. And you follow the Pope, or you bow down to statues. So when they see, think Christian in Senegal and so many places of the world, they're thinking Catholicism. That's what they're thinking is Christianity. The Crusades, you know, killing Muslims and slavery, uh, colonialism. Those are all things embedded in the thinking of so many Muslims. And worst of all, you refuse to believe the most logical conclusion of all, that Muhammad is the last prophet. Now, why haven't you accepted him? Well, we addressed that last night, and we'll address it more today. That's a mouthful, isn't it? But in light of these misconceptions that Muslims have, how then shall we live as believers? What is our task? Well, here again, we can think of two things for sure. Give them a chance to see a true follower of Christ by the way we live, by the way we don't live. Let them see Christ in us and then give them a chance to understand the true word of God. They think their Quran is the final word from God. And so they need a chance to understand what God has said through his many prophets over many centuries, this consistent message that he's proclaimed. We want to understand, too, that when we're talking about people from the Eastern Hemisphere versus the Western Hemisphere or East-West, that there, there are some real differences in our culture, okay? And let's just first think about our own culture real briefly. In Western culture, we, we are very individualistic, the way we think and do. We're time-oriented. Uh, we're efficiency-oriented often. You know, got to be most efficient in the way we do things. Uh, we often see fragmented families out there, uh, families that are split up and here and there. And we also believe that our beliefs are very personal. Okay, that would be very typical Western thinking. What about Eastern culture, Eastern thinking? We're going to contrast here now. Individualistic versus community-oriented. Everything happens as a, a community. And so... It's very difficult for a Muslim to turn from Islam to Christ because they're part of a family, a community, and that's who we are. It's our identity. Uh, we're time-oriented. They're event-oriented. You know, we go to a wedding. Here, what a wedding here is 
maybe 45 minutes, an hour max. You know, everything's time, starts on time, ends on time. Well, in Senegal, uh, we went to one wedding in a village, and, uh, you know, the bride didn't arrive till what was it, two hours after it was supposed to start. Um, and, you know, the MC is up there saying, oh, it's no problem. We're here for the day, you know. We're, we're in for the long haul. So, you know, it's, it's event-oriented rather than time-oriented. How about efficiency-oriented versus relationship-oriented? Uh, if, I, if I hold up, um, let's see if I have a dollar bill here. All right, if, I, if I hold up some money, I'm going to hold up a dollar bill. Uh, what do you think of when you see that? What can you do with a dollar? Shout it out. What's a dollar good for in your mind? Huh? What can you buy or what can you do with it? Ice cream. <laughs> Gallon of gas. There you go. Ham- did I hear hamburger there. All right. So we're... All right, that's maybe that's that's the way we think. But now, what about what about somebody from the uh, from the east, at least from Senegal? If you say, you know, what could you do with this? You know, one of the first things they might think of, I could I could give it to my father, and it would help him with the the, the expenses for the day, you know, and that would strengthen our relationship because I've been able to help out. You know, people are poor. Uh, a lot of unemployment, but here I've got something now, or at least give part of it. Maybe I'd give 50 cents and use 50 cents for myself, but I'm going to do something to help the family. And it's going to strengthen my relationship. So now someday when I'm in, in a hard spot, then he'll also be more responsive to helping me in my difficulty. You're building relationships. And, you know, we're in a hurry, rushing along, and they're, they're not in a hurry. It's about relationships, taking time for people. Uh, Extended families, you'll see a big family in a home and you'll see relatives and a child of a distant family that's there living with them. And it's these extended families versus a fragmented family or just a a very small nuclear family. Personal beliefs versus communal beliefs. Again, it comes back to the community oriented that it is so difficult for someone in that culture to turn from their belief to Christ, whether it's Hindu or Islam or whatever it is. Uh, In 2001, a survey was taken by 600 MBBs. An MBB is a Muslim background believer, someone who was Muslim and now is a Christian, a follower of Jesus. And in this survey, they were told to write down the reasons, what was it that caused them to turn from Islam to Christ? And there were seven reasons. And they also were to prioritize them and say, what was the the strongest reason that drew you to Christ? And 50% put uh, one of these as number one, and I'm going to give that to you in the last place, in seventh place, just so we can save that suspense for you. But uh, here we go. Assure salvation. Islam cannot offer people assure salvation. And uh, I like to do this. You know the song, Blessed Assurance. Jesus is mine. The fourth verse says, Perfect submission, all is at rest. I and my Savior am happy and blessed. So it's this, this relationship, this assurance that we have in Christ And, of course, submission, uh, Islam means submission. Muslim is one who submits. And so I was hearing that song one day, and I thought, how would a Muslim write that verse? If they had to rewrite verse 4 of Blessed Assurance, it might sound like this. Excuse me. uh, Perfect submission, I'm not at rest. I and my prophet just hope for the best. Praying and fasting, resigned to my fate, filled with Quranic verses, Till judgment date. This is my story. This is my state. Allahu Akbar. God is great. And really, if there was a Muslim out here today, 
or maybe there's a former Muslim here, you know that you can only say amen to what I just said. That is your worldview. That is what Islam offers you. No assurance of salvation. And so it's very attractive to a Muslim to earn, to learn that you really can know where you're going when you die. Uh, those uh, Muslims, many discovered too, when they began to read the scriptures, it's truly a holy book. They were told that it was corrupted. You can't trust it. They begin to read and they see there's no other book like this. The person of Jesus Christ. Of course, Jesus is the centerpiece. He is our salvation. But the very attraction to his character, to the loveliness of his, his love, his holiness, his, his uh, kindness, his works of, of compassion to people around him. His Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do from the cross, uh, praying for those who crucified him. That was very attractive. Versus Muhammad, who used violence and torturing people, as is recorded in the Islamic sources, sources such as the Hadith. A complementary dream. Dream or vision. 25% on the survey said, yes, in the process of coming to Christ, I had a dream or a series of dreams that attracted me to the Savior. And we could tell you many stories about Muslims that, have, that God has met them in a special way. Sometimes here in the West, in, in our comfortable Christian circles, we think, oh, no, no, we have the Word of God. And that's, you know, yes, the Word of God is sufficient. But what about people in countries who, where the government doesn't even let you have a Bible? And is God not still reaching out to souls? Yes, he is. And he often meets people in special ways, and he draws them out to understand that this is the truth. And they end up coming to someone who has a Bible and who tells them the truth. And so many stories uh, of God reaching out, caring for Muslims in that way. Persecuted for righteousness' sake. The very fact that when a Muslim comes to Christ, he's persecuted, he's kicked out of his home, he loses his job, his life is threatened, maybe he's even killed. But it's, it speaks to those that are watching, and they're saying, you know, there must be something to this. Why is my family so angry? Because my brother says now he's a follower of Jesus. And so they begin to search, and they decide, I'd rather be the persecuted than the persecutor. A God who is near, especially for women, this was so attractive. You know, we talked about that a little bit yesterday, but women feel so isolated, so ostracized. And to, to discover there's a God there who you can call Father, a God who listens to your prayers, a God who answers you when you pray, like we saw with Hagar. He's the God who hears, a God who is near. Now, number one on the list, or 50% said this was number one, the love of God. And maybe you're thinking, for God so loved the world, that was the attraction. Well, Yes, but no. That wasn't what they were talking about here primarily. They're talking about the love of God as shown through Christians. Compassion, kindness shown to them, and that was an attracting factor to bring them to where they wanted to listen to the gospel and where they discovered the God of love who loved them and gave himself for them. Just two little stories, thinking about the love of God. This is a story from uh, an Arabic-speaking brother, he uh, told this story of he was in uh, an area of the Middle East, and one of the uh, a Christian there, a pre, it was actually a, a Coptic priest, and who certainly called himself Christian, he was saying, you know, there was atrocities committed in this part of our city by Muslims many decades ago, and it has never been revenged. They killed many Christians. And so my friend uh, said to him, you know, you're right. We, we really should carry out a revenge against them. Let's do it today, in fact. Today? Uh, yeah, today. And so he says, let's go down the marketplace. And so they go down the marketplace, and they load the pickup up with food, 
rice and drinks and things, and then they go down to that section of town and they begin to give out the food to the people of this neighborhood where the atrocities had been committed. And, uh, of course, the brother told the Coptic priest, this is, this is Christian revenge. You know, if your brother hungers, you, if you, you, you feed him. If your enemy hungers, you feed him, and you heap coals of fire on his head in that way. One more story. Uh, this was a, a Middle Eastern pastor, probably considered an evangelical, in fact. Uh, but he said to another friend of mine, he, he, he says, why do you witness to Muslims? This was in the Middle East. And my friend said, because they need Jesus. He says, Muslims need hell. Now, that might be shocking to us, but if we don't really care what happens to Muslims and we don't plan to be involved in any form, not even to pray for them, then how different are we from that Middle Eastern pastor? This is a couple in the uh, assembly in San Luis. The husband came to Christ many years ago. Adam is his name, Adama. But his wife held out for many, many years. And all I want to make the point here, it's a long story, but I'll keep it short, is that what drew her to Christ was love. Love on the part of her husband. But then she was actually, they were in a group where they uh, were quite isolated. It was quite exclusive type group. And uh, she didn't have a lot of exposure with a lot of Senegalese women and all that really could show her the love of Christ. And later they came over to the assembly and the, the ladies there, the Senegalese ladies, started lavishing on her compassion and kindness and help. And it wasn't long and she came to Christ. She had heard the truth. But it wasn't the truth in, 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 with, with enough uh, love wrapped around it. And it was the love of God that attracted her. And I just want to point out, too, that this family is very poor. You saw their nice smiles. They're poor. They live in a very one of the poorest, most garbagey sections of town in San Luis, Senegal. Uh, they had flooding this year. That's their toilet. Uh, their house was, had water in it about more than a foot up into the house. The kids slept in the chicken pen for a while there. And, uh, you know, this is just the kind of stuff that a lot of believers go through in poor areas of the world. And uh, yet they stay in the joy of the Lord. And, of course, we're, we're, we're praying about seeing how they can be helped and this kind of thing. But there, there's so much opportunity, I tell you. You start looking at these situations and, and you just realize we have it so good and there's so much opportunity to show God's love in practical ways. Well, we know there are four Gospels, but there's a fifth Gospel we need to think about. You are our epistle written in our hearts, known and read by all men. Clearly, you are an epistle of Christ, Paul wrote to the Corinthians. And so there's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you. A lot of people will never read the Gospels. At least they won't initially unless they first see the Gospel in your life, in my life. That's the attracting feature, to see Christ lived out in our lives an understood message. It's not enough just to show compassion either. We want to be equipped to make the message clear. And that was Paul's passion. We opened our session last night with Romans chapter 1, and we read how this is his passion. This was his horizon. This was his view, was to make the message clear. And he, he talks about it's this incredible message that was told beforehand by the prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, Jesus Christ, and so on. It was his passion. And he says I, in verse 16, of course, that the gospel is the power of God to salvation, to everyone who believes. And probably most, if not all of us, have heard the Greek word for the word power there. It's dunamis, uh, from which Nobel, who invented dynamite, named dynamite after that Greek word. Uh, so something that's very powerful is uh, the gospel. 
But you find that same word in 1 Corinthians 14.11. It talks about the meeting of the church, and it says if I come in and they're speaking a language I don't understand, then I don't know the meaning of the word. I don't know the dunamis of the word. And so the, um, the same Greek word is used to describe meaning in that sense. There's no power in what they're saying because I'm not understanding it. And so maybe we can conclude that the power of the gospel is in the meaning of the gospel. And it is our job as ambassadors for Christ to make that message clear. In the first missionary journey, it says that they, Paul and uh, Barnabas, they spoke so effectively that a great number believed. And uh, any translation you look in, it'll give that idea. They spoke with, with such power, with such clarity, such effectiveness, in such a way that many believed. Now, we know it's the Holy Spirit's work. It's not our eloquence. Paul says, I didn't come with eloquence. I determined to preach nothing among you but Jesus Christ and him crucified. But there is something, too, to what Paul asked for prayer to the Colossians. Pray that I might present it clearly as I ought. It makes a difference. And so you don't come to a Muslim and just quote John 3.16 and think, or give them a little three-page gospel track and think, I've done my duty. There's a lot of confusion there. there there's incredible confusion, and it takes patient teaching to help them work through that which they've been taught from their youth. So that's the teacher's task, is to make the message clear. And we know that uh, faith comes by hearing, that is understanding, and understanding by the Word of God. Just one more little story along this line. Uh, we have a friend, uh, John Cross. He's written some great books that make the gospel so clear. One is The Stranger on the Road to Emmaus. And he was going through this book with an unbeliever. It's a method of evangelism. Read through the book together and let them hear the story. And they came to the story of Noah and the flood. And the man says, John, you don't really believe this, do you? This, I mean, this thing about a worldwide flood and the animals in the ark and all that. And, and John's response was excellent. He says, you know, whether I believe it or not isn't the point here. My question to you is, do you understand it? Do you understand what the Bible's saying here about God judging the world with a flood? And preserving the species and so on. Oh, man says, yes, I understand it. I just don't believe it. John says, fine, let's keep, let's keep reading. And they kept going on the story of redemption and coming up to Christ and his finished work. And, and uh, by the end of the study, over a period of many days of study, the, the man trusted Christ. And now he believed. But it wasn't John's problem to make him believe. It's not our problem either. What about bridges? I'm going to just suggest three bridges that can help a person come out of the darkness of Islam to Christ. Just a starting point, you know, when you present the truth to Muslims. One we talked about yesterday, and it's this of uh, the prophets. Um, the Quran itself commands Muslims to believe the previous scriptures, that is, the Bible, the Torah of Moses, the Psalms of David, and the Gospel of Jesus. And so that's a starting point. Do you know what the prophet said? Sure, they say it's been corrupted. We talked about that. But just let the word God go. You know, let it, let it speak and, and show them the stories of the prophets. They are so interested to know more about the prophets because the Quran is so uh, confusing and, and so minimal. And it, doesn't give them, it doesn't flesh out the stories of the prophets in any coherent kind of way. Abraham's sacrifice. Every year Muslims have a sacrifice. The feast of Id al-Hadda, they commemorate when God provided a ram to die in the place of Abraham's son. I put up Surah 37. There's only, there are only nine verses about the whole story. But there's a phrase in there that says, We redeemed him, Abraham's son, with a momentous sacrifice. Well, that's something right there. 
Muslims deny the sacrifice of Christ, and yet every year they're offering up a sacrifice. You know, they're having a feast. They kill a ram. They go through a series of rituals, and they eat it. But they're remembering the very sacrifice that points to Jesus Christ and his death on the cross. And then one more, of course, the person of Jesus. Mentioned yesterday how the Quran gives Jesus a very special place. He's just a prophet, but he's born of a virgin, according to the Quran. He's called the Word of God, the Soul of God, the Messiah. He did miracles that no one else ever did. And he's said to be righteous. He's coming back again to judge, or not to judge, according to the Quran, but he's coming back again at the end of time. And so Muslims are interested to know more about Jesus. I told you about Malik, the first MBB in Senegal that through our ministry. And that was his starting point. I want to know more about Jesus. All right. Uh, just uh, mention here, I'm going uh, I'm to be doing a little teaching in the next session. I'm going to show you the contrast with some indigenous visual aids, not PowerPoint, something different. But we're going to just talk very briefly about what Muslims believe versus what the Bible teaches. And so much of what, we, what a Muslim needs to know is found in the first three or four chapters of the Bible. And here are the most critical doctrines. And this is where you win or lose the battle. They need to understand about God, about man, about sin, and about salvation. And so we're going to talk about those in the next session. I won't linger there for now. Uh, in um, southern Senegal, Malik, again, the first Muslim background believer there, and I, we were teaching chronologically. We were teaching the story of the prophets to a group in a very hot section of the country. The whole country's hot, but it was a hot time. And... Yet people were listening, and uh, some of them were Muslim background believers. A couple of them were still Muslims, seeking Muslims. And so we were teaching, and then we would have a answer, a question-and-answer session. And one of them asked, what about Muhammad? Okay, we're hearing what you're saying about the prophets. They all point to Jesus. But what about Muhammad? You know, I mean, we've learned from our youth that Muhammad is the last of the prophets. So how do you answer that? And uh, we were sitting around on mats, and their shoes were off, and so I just grabbed one shoe. And a little bit difficult to see. It's very dark, but there's, there are a row of shoes there. And so I plunked down one shoe here, and I said, uh, okay, this will represent uh, Abraham. And I, I need to be brief here because our time is just flying. But um, I just mentioned how Abraham pointed to Christ. You know, in the, in the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. And then I put it on another shoe, and I said how uh, – Moses, the prophet Moses, he pointed to Christ in, in so many ways, through reiterating the need for a sacrifice and another one who would come and, and, and uh, that you must listen to him. And he, 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 he has all these pictures of the tabernacle, everything pointing to a coming Savior. Put down another shoe, and I talked about the prophet David. That will represent David. And, and he, he said, you know, that the Messiah will, he talks about him as the Son of God, and he says that his hands and his feet will be pierced. And that the grave won't be able to hold him. And another shoe, and that represented the prophet uh, Isaiah, who said, you know, that the Savior was wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities, and, and uh, that uh, he would be like a lamb led to the slaughter. And, and another shoe then was represented John the Baptist, and he was born six months before the Messiah came. And, and the Messiah is born, and another shoe for him. But now the John the Baptist is saying, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And, and so Jesus comes, and we have this row, and he's the last in that row. And Jesus said, Don't think I came to take away the law and the prophets, but I've come to fulfill them. I've come to give my life a ransom for many. We're, we're going to Jerusalem now. We're going to go to that same mountain range where Abraham offered up the ram, and I'm going to die. I'm going to shed my blood. And, and he did that. And from the cross, he said, It's finished. 
and he was buried, and the third day he came back to life, and he says, because I live, you shall live also. And I'm coming back again to judge the world. And he, he goes back to heaven with the promise that I'm the first and the last. I have the keys of hell and of death. And then I took another shoe, and you can see that one on the far right-hand edge of the picture. And I set it way out there, and I said, now, 600 years after Jesus returned to heaven, here comes another man, and he says, no, yeah, well, yes, we believe all these prophets. They're all prophets from God, uh, and we believe in Jesus, but he's not the last prophet. I'm the last prophet, and Jesus wasn't the Son of God, and he didn't die on the cross. And the way you, you, you are, can have a chance of being accepted by God is by praying and fasting and giving alms, etc. I said to the guys there and the ladies, men and women, I said, can you see that we have a choice? Either you go with the consistent message of the prophets or you go with the inconsistent message of the man out in the desert. I've made my choice. I've made my choice. So that's one way of answering that question. All right, we want to take you briefly to Egypt. Uh, you know, so much is in the news about what's happening there. And just got a letter from a, a brother um, in Egypt. It's actually uh, a large Baptist church in, in Cairo. And uh, they were discussing the events of what had taken place and sharing their feelings. And he said, here's, here's some of what came out, you know. We were scared, you know, with this revolution going on. And I was worried about my family and, and, and did not know what to do. And I was totally confused. I, I, I totally collapsed. It was like a difficult test for me. And so these were some of their reactions. But then they began to talk about the things they were learning from God. What was God saying to them through this crisis? And they began to give insights that I think are so powerful one said, it's time for believers to test their principles and values in the times of difficulty. The church is safe. Even if we have a loaf of bread, we will share it. Now, that's something because a lot of people were really going hungry and they were wondering, where are we going to get food from? It is time for us to stop being so selfish and go out and encourage those who are afraid. I remembered what Nehemiah did when he heard the bad news about the destruction of his city, and I repented and wept. I recognized that, this, that in this hard time, I should not think about my own needs, but think about, and I left it blank here. I want you to fill in what you think they said to finish this phrase. I recognize that in this hard time, I should not think about my own needs, but think about, well, the obvious thing is think about the needs of others, right? That's not what they said. Think about who my God is. And they put down Psalm 63, which talks about power of God in the midst of any situation. Isn't that great? That's where we need to have our focus, isn't it? In every circumstance of life, think about who our God is. Think about who he is. Think about what he wants from us. And everything flows out of that. Oh, boy. I'm pretty much out of time here. But uh, Rock International is a nonprofit organization that we started four years ago. It was actually the vision of our son who works in the Middle East. And um, it stands for two things, relief, opportunity, and care for kids, and resources of crucial knowledge. We call it Rock Kids or Rock Resources. And I think uh, the vision that we have is, is just what we want in everyday life, really, is to demonstrate God's life, uh, God's love in practical ways to people, and to declare God's message in a clear and an appropriate way. Appropriate. That is so important. You know, you can think I'll just declare it, but you have to think about who you're ministering to. 
and how you present it. And so Rock Kids is uh, ministering to to uh, children in, in um, difficult places. But uh, I just want to tell you about, just put before you uh, the uh, one section of the city of Cairo in just the, the su- suburb of Cairo, and it's called Garbage City. And here we have non-Muslims. Remember, non-Muslims are the Zimis. They're the submitted ones. They get the worst jobs. And in Cairo, you've got this huge neighborhood, a couple of them actually, called Garbage City. And they're sorting through the, the garbage of Cairo's 20 million people. You can see plastics there. They're sorting through. And they recycle these things. And it, inside these homes are precious souls, again, for whom Christ died. Uh, here's the father of this family. He was very happy that day because they had gotten a load of plastics in. And uh, so he'll recycle those, and that's a, a cash crop for him. Here's another family. Again, they're, they're quite poor, and yet they put out their best food for us when we went and joined them for supper. Uh, one of the ministries that has been done there is a little center called, we call it an art center, and you go up these dirty, dark staircase and come into a region of light and color, and uh, it was an outreach to children in that area. Uh, unfortunately, it's closed right now, and so there's a lot that we have to work through as we look to the Lord for the next steps there in a, in a very troubled region. But one project in another area is in Israel and Palestine. The Palestine project, uh, Christians on the ground there that are doing it, but Rock gets behind them to encourage and to finance these projects, giving backpacks to uh, uh, children, helping them out with their, their needs for school. And here's the little booklet, Your Story, we have on the table out there. Help yourself to a copy of that. But we have it in Arabic too, and they're printing that as well and giving those out. And so projects are not about just projects, but people, aren't they? Touching people. And then uh, the project in Senegal I mentioned yesterday. Again, Rock is behind that and with finances to build a medical clinic there and to do something in the local school as well. So, again, we're looking to bless the Senegalese people through these projects for kids. The other side of Rock is resources of crucial knowledge, and we're using it for publishing resources. And again, we do radio broadcasts, uh, The Way of Righteousness, a series that's in about 80 languages now. Uh, we also use a tool called Megavoice. It's, you, it's like a little handheld iPod, uh, but it's um, got a solar panel on the back, and we have them with the whole New Testament in. We have them with our 100 Lesson Chronological Teaching Series. And so uh, for people that are 70 80% illiterate in the country, this is a great tool. They can listen to the Word of God even if they can't read it. I mentioned... As a result of 9-11, letters, emails I received, I wrote the book One God, One Message, and that's another tool. Your Story is another tool that we're using, published by Rock International. But these are appropriate resources that speak to the hearts of a Muslim in a way that they can understand, in a way that helps them over their, their obstacles. I'm field testing a, a new book that we're working on, King of Glory. It's for kids ages 10 to 100, basically, and I'm working with a very talented uh, artist in Argentina. Sorry, it's so dark up there, but they're incredibly bright, beautiful pictures for kids and adults alike. And there'll be 70 scenes and walking them through the story of redemption. Some of them are still just uh, sketches, but we're getting close. We hope to publish that by June, and we hope to do it initially in Arabic, French, and Spanish. And so just pray for these projects. You know, everyone takes a lot of finances and just wisdom, translation, formatting, printing, all these things. Of course, we're using Facebook ads as well to let people come to our websites and download them free of charge. Again, the resources that we produce are not about Muslims, 
There are four Muslims and other seekers. There are so many books that have been written since 9-11 about Islam, about Muslims, but our goal is to have products that you can actually give to a Muslim or to any seeking Christian for that matter. Samuel Zwemer was an amazing servant of the Lord uh, working in Arabia. He was, a, he was a contemporary of Lawrence of Arabia, and he said this, that no agency can penetrate Islam so deeply, abide so persistently, witness so daringly, and influence so irresistibly as the printed page. And, of course, today we have other means to Internet and this kind of thing, but it's still the printed page. It's still people coming where they can think through the issues of eternal life. And I'm going to close with this. This was a few years ago, and Carol and I were visiting our son in, 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 in Cairo and here uh, Garbage City. But one comment he made as we were looking out over the big neighborhood, he said, you know, it's interesting. If, if all that stuff down there was new, it would be the richest neighborhood in the city but it's all trash. And I thought, you know, of something that uh, a UPS friend of mine in California, he's retired now, but he said sometimes when he would deliver his packages, he would, he would say to people, you know, well, I brought you your trash. What? My trash? I paid a lot of money for that. Well, that's what it's going to be 10 years from now. Oh, you're right. You're right. And just we close with this. Think about what are we investing in? Uh, There are only two things that are going to last forever that are presently on planet Earth. One, of course, is the Word of God. So that's a good place to invest, isn't it? How much time are we spending in the Word of God? How well do we know the Word? How well do we know the Lord of the Word? How well do we know the stories? How well can we tell the story of redemption? Can we tell from our hearts in a clear, in a captivating way, the story of redemption beginning with Adam? Uh, We need to know the Word of God. And the other, of course, that's going to last forever are people. And so we invest in people, and those are the things that are going to last. It's not all our stuff, but it is investing in the Word of God and people. May the Lord encourage us in that way. Here's a song. I'm not going to sing it for you, but I love the words. Let me see this world, dear Lord, as though I were looking through your eyes, a world of men who don't want you, Lord, yet a world for which you died. Let me kneel with you in the garden, blur my eyes with tears of agony, For if once I could see this world the way you see, I just know I'd serve you more faithfully. Let me see this world, dear Lord, through your eyes when men mocked your holy name. When they beat you and spat upon you, dear Lord, let me love them as you love them just the same. This is a good line now. Help me rise high above my petty problems and weep for men hell-bound eternally. For if once I could see this world the way you see, I just know I'd serve you more faithfully. Father, we just thank you that you have so loved us and that you've so loved the world. Help us to see the world through your eyes. We confess that we like to be comfortable. We confess that we like to have everything happy and right for ourselves. But we pray that you'd give us the eyes of compassion of the Lord who didn't have a place to lay his head and who saw the world with compassion even when he was tired that he had time for people always ready to share with them himself he was the word living word so lord we just love you thank you for first loving us and we do lift before you the muslim world in this time this tumultuous time pray for your mighty working in the midst of the trials in the midst of this pain and uh, may your word shine into the darkness and we just thank you now for the continued time we have together here to think about what you're doing and 
the, the home front here through camp and later as we look into the contrast between your wonderful good news and what Muslims have been taught, we just pray you'll continue to challenge our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.